welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by SaaStock. I'm Mike Cullen, SaaStock's new CMO, sitting in for Alex Thuma this week while he's at SaaS North in Ottawa, and then literally crossing the entire world to make his way to Sydney for SaaStock Oceania on December 6th. On this week's episode, we take you back to the SaaStock 18 stage for a panel featuring four CMOs. Eileen O'Mara from Salesforce, Heather Zinzak from Pluralsight, Megan Eisenberg from MongoDB, and Ryan Carlson from Okta discuss the role of the CMO in today's B2B marketing space. I may be biased, but it was, it was one of my favorite sessions at the scale stage, as panelists touched upon some fundamental topics I am currently working on here at SASDAQ. I loved the advice that Heather Zinzak provided on delivering great lead generation programs. What's exciting for me with this opportunity is this motion of B to C to B. You look at Dropbox, you look at Slack, you know, I, you probably come up with 20 other really great examples of companies who are either doing a free product and moving it to an individual that paid and then moving it into B2B and really getting that successful. It's the most lucrative lead gen programs you can do because then you have an advocate. It's like a Trojan horse. You have an advocate inside the company that is already using your product and wants to push it out. So I think it's, it's referral selling, which we all know is some of the most successful selling in B2B at its best. Like all CMOs, one of my duties will be growing the marketing team. And I found Megan Eisenberg's advice on hiring incredibly interesting. You've got to be able to hire your weakness. So a lot of times CMOs, you know, if they come up the comms branding route, they'll come up the product marketing route, or they'll come up demand gen. And whatever route they come up, they need to balance themselves. So I really came up more demand gen. I have to have a strong product marketer, and I want to have a strong comms brand. And if, or you need to have experience in those areas. So I think um, finding, know your weakness and hire people who are smarter than you in the other areas. Speaking of hiring, the first role we will be looking to fill is a new social media manager. So what Ryan Carlson had to say about Okta's use of social media was really insightful. We typically sell to the C-level executives, um, and so we're, we're never going to get a lead directly from social media. For, for us, for social media, what we're doing is trying to reinforce a deeper story about us, and so that starts with authenticity. So one of the things that we try to do on social media is really use it to tell our customers' stories. Uh, our company is an identity technology product, but just the fact that we focus on identity gives us the ability to focus on the identities of some of our customers. So, for example, we ran a, a campaign, which we called Identities, which focused on the unique aspects of people in IT and their lives outside of work. So one example was a woman who was the only, four to- only person in the world to be a, a bodybuilding champion, a weightlifting champion, and the world's strongest woman winner. And she's also the head of security for one of our largest customers. So we didn't talk about what she does at work. We talked about her life outside of work. And we created this whole campaign around social media because we thought her story was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And that one was one of the ones that... Um, from a social media standpoint, performed the best for us because we got a lot of conversation and interaction around it. As a marketer, I got to listen in on a lot more actionable content packed into the two days of SASDAQ 18. Hearing invaluable advice from April Dunford on how to position products better, Kieran Flanagan on how to run growth-minded teams, Dave Gerhard on how to make brand your biggest revenue generator was just the tip of the iceberg. Their insights will be informing how I think about SaaS marketing for many months to come. If you didn't get a chance to catch these and all the other talks at SASDAQ 18, we have recordings of them all that you can binge watch. Head over to live.sasdaq.com to find out more. Now, on with the show. Good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be hosting this panel. I'm going to invite our panelists to join me on the stage and do a quick introduction as they come up. 
So as Catherine mentioned, I am the CMO for EMEA, for Salesforce, and the honorary Irish person on the panel today. So welcome to everybody. First up, I'd like to introduce Heather Sinzak. I hope that I got that right, Heather. The CMO from Pluralsight, in from the US. She is really an advocator and a leader in this space and technology at a global level, and we're thrilled to have you here. Welcome, Heather. Second, please give a warm welcome to Ryan Carson. Ryan is the CMO of Okta. Again, visiting us in Dublin this year. He's responsible for drawing awareness of the DemGen and the Octile Identity Cloud. Welcome, Ryan, and thanks for being with us. And last, but of course not least, please give a final welcome to Megan Eisenberg. Megan is a CMO of MongoDB, and she spent as long as I have, over 20 years in this space. So super welcome to you as well. And to all of our panelists, please take a seat. So to you in the audience, um, you have the opportunity, of course, to ask questions. I'm going to do my very best to keep on time and to interact between the questions that I have with the panelists and what you offer up on Slido. So I'm going to start with a question to all of you. Let me push back a little bit, Heather. And my question to all of you, um, and I'll start with you if that's okay, Heather. At this point in time, when everybody is obsessed, every company and every marketeer around the connection with the customer and getting a 360 view of that customer and interacting with them in a very intimate way. Where is your thinking on that and what is your approach uh, as you look to kind of the future and how you're driving your marketing strategies? So I'm lucky. Uh, I've worked in tech a really long time, almost 25 years, and the company I'm at right now, Pluralsight, is the first company I've worked at that we actually built the product for the end user. I've been at a ton of tech companies where I've marketed, no, no, we've built this product for the end user, but we really did it. We built it for the people that paid, which isn't always the end user. But Pluralsight started out as a product that sold to devs, to individuals, and moved into a B2B. And our product team um, has this process called directed discovery where the, basically the end user and the customer really builds the product. They influence everything. Uh, it always comes down to what does the customer want in the product. So it's kind of the mentality of our whole organization. And as a result, our NPS of our product is 65. And I don't know another SaaS company that's even close to that. I think the closest, as a reference for those of you um, that aren't as familiar with NPS, Apple is at like a 70, which is world-class best standards. So for the first time, I've been at a company that truly, the customer comes first in everything we do from the very first point of product building all the way through the sales and marketing cycle and support. And I think you have to have that fundamental uh, foundation to have the customer first, even when building products. I think there'll be a lot of people envious of your position and that you're built from a customer-centric point of view. Ryan, what about you and Alta? How does it differ or is it similar? Yeah, I think we, we, like many companies, focus on the customer for pragmatic reasons. SaaS businesses have a renewal aspect. If you don't make your customer successful, they're not going to renew. Um, but it goes deeper than that with us. Our number one core value is love our customers. And so I think that to, to answer your question, one of the, the challenges with where you have a 360-degree review of the customer, is you now are awash in more data than ever before. And there's a tendency to look at the data and abstract away from the customer and say, you know, generically, here's how our customers feel about us. We try to balance that by still staying close to the customers as people. Uh, we do a lot of things like customer advisory boards or uh, at our customer conference, which we call Octane. We spend a lot of time with them individually to make sure we're not just looking at that data, which is now more prevalent than ever before, but we're balancing that by truly understanding our customers as individuals as well. Good, and I love that value, love your customer. It's so simple, yet so powerful. Yeah. Megan, from your perspective, 
Can you share your thoughts? Yeah, I think in marketing, our job is to attract, convert, keep, and delight customers. And we have a, a we have twenty eight different marketing technologies. And each of those are spread across that, you know, some are used to attract people in, others are used to convert them once they're on the site or within our product, and then once they become a customer, keeping them and, and learning from it. So I think a lot of it is getting the right systems in place and then collecting the data so that you can create that experience. Can I jump in and add to that? Yeah, of course. When, when uh, Megan mentioned she has 28 systems, our CFO came to me the other day and said, Ryan, you guys have 30 different systems that you use for marketing. And, he said, and I said, I know, that's a real problem. He said, yeah, that's a problem. I said... He said, at the same time, you use too many, and I said, we need to use too few. So I think we can't use enough technology, and he says, well, you know, you'll probably have to work with your CFO on how many systems you're using uh, in marketing in particular. And I'll give you a benchmark on that, because all of our companies are similar in size. We have 37. We did an audit the other day, and I kind of freaked out. And I was like, thir- I was like your CFO, because I'm all about, you know, stressing about spend. I was like, 37? So we went and talked to Serious Decisions. And for a company our size, we're actually just a little bit below average on 37. So you guys are, are doing good at You're 28, 30. That's <laughs> super interesting. Um, so there's a lot of conversation at the moment in the marketplace around the fourth industrial revolution where irrespective of what company, what segment, what size, what industry, you know, we're living in a new area where technology is enabling everything to be connected. I'm going to throw this open to you to start, Ryan. Just on that, as a marketeer, like what opportunity and challenge do you see for people like us who are running, you know, marketing departments and functions and company of all sizes? Yeah, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, I think, is a good way to, to say it. Mark Andreessen uh, has this phrase that software is eating the world, and basically what he means is if any company is going to be transformed by technology, in particular software, and if they're not, they're not going to be around. For, for us, that actually affects Okta in two different ways. One, our product is used for that, so we have an identity product that helps employees at your company sign into your applications securely, but it's also increasingly used as the identity layer between the software that you build and the customers who access it. So this whole trend of the fourth industrial revolution or digital transformation or software in the world affects how I market my technology because we typically tar- market to, to CIOs or CTOs, but now we're going to my counterparts at our customers, CMOs, and saying, here's why you need to use identity and technology to connect to your customers. But as a market here, it also affects us in that you know, there's an, uh, an adage or a cliche that says it takes a lifetime to build up a reputation of trust and just a couple of moments to destroy that. I think that's ever more true as customers talk to each other more simply about your product and your service. We focus very much on making sure that our customers trust us, not only because they'll, they'll talk to each other, but we just think that if we screw something up, it will become readily apparent quickly, and uh, you can't treat that lightly. Yeah, and I think that's so relevant. I mean, when we talk about the fourth industrial revolution, we really say there's fourth revolutions happening in one, and trust is a cornerstone for all of those. Just maybe, Megan, Heather, anything you want to add to that? Is this fourth industrial revolution overhyped, maybe? Is this kind of business as it should be now? No, I mean, I think it's definitely, there's a ton of data out there, and um, companies that are using it to their advantage are winning in the market and disrupting the market. So, I, I mean, I think it's um, for all of us to go go collect it, figure it out, and act on it. Great. Um, I was in London last week at the Festival of Marketing, and one of the buzzes around there last week was around, hey, actually, CMOs and CIOs are being merged into one identity, which leads me onto this question I'm going to throw over to you, Heather, around digital transformation within a company. Like, where, what are you seeing in your own company? What are you seeing in your network as you talk to companies and customers? And what is our role as marketeers in terms of driving that forward and the relationship between the CIO and CMO in that context? 
Yeah, so I think I'll first attack that with like the bigger markets. I mean, we all know this, you know, look at the transportation industry with Uber or the hoteling industry with Airbnb, you know, technology and digital transformation is disrupting every single industry. And either you are the disruptor or you're being disrupted. And so for our customers, they're basically coming to Pluralsight to get training and skills because they can't do the disruption without the right talent on board. And so we're seeing this in every industry, every customer base. And there is literally millions of jobs. I think there was one report by 2020, it's going to be over 10 million jobs worldwide that can't be filled because there's not the people with the skills to enable this digital transformation, this digital disruption. So if you take it back to marketers, how many of you are hiring people with um, tech, need technology skills? Okay, pretty much almost every time. How many of you had a super easy time finding those people to hire? Okay, I don't see one hand. So in addition to your hiring strategies, how do you up-level your teams? I know this is something that we struggle with every day in marketing. You know, I have 37 systems, you have 28, you have almost 30. You gotta have people to run those and be efficient at it and really keep you cutting edge. So one thing we've really done is tried to create a culture of learning. And one of my favorite stories is um, there's a woman in our group who was an executive assistant. She was an admin to a C-level exec. And she really wanted to become a developer. And she took courses. And she's now our top Adobe AEM developer. And that's a really hard skill set for us to find in our market. And so I would encourage you to invest in your people, invest in their training, and really create a culture of learning. That's a great story. And I mean, we're seeing that as well with our trailhead platform where people are reinventing their careers. Now the question is, how many careers can you have in a lifetime, which with this type of technology is super exciting. Megan, anything different that you're seeing uh, on this tra digital transformation within MongoDB? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's similar across all functions. There's technologies that we're investing in and people are ramping on them. Certainly, MongoDB, we have a technical buyer, so yeah. it's really important in order for us to be authentic with our marketing that at least half the people in my org have a technical background uh, and are constantly learning uh, new technologies. So, I mean, we're, we're seeing the same thing and it's not easy to hire for. We're a New York-based company and we're hiring talent where it exists that so we, we've got to go all, all over the world to do that. Great. Um, I might just shift gears a little bit, Ryan, and ask you this question. I think for us who have grown up in technology, you know, measuring things and having analytics and accountability is kind of second nature. It's in the DNA of our companies, but it's not the same in different industries. Mm -hmm. um, measuring the impact of social media and having, you know, a really impactful social media strategy, B2B, B2C, B2H, B2I, and whatever category you want to go there, yeah. is super important for a lot of marketeers. Can you just maybe talk to me on your experience or how you're thinking um, around that agenda, around that topic within your company? Yeah, I think when we look at social media, so we sell to other businesses and we typically sell to the C-level executives of those businesses. Um, and so we're, we're never going to get a lead directly from social media. For, for us, for social media, what we're doing is trying to reinforce a deeper story about us. And so that starts with authenticity. If, you know, this is, this is common, this is 101, social media 101, but if you're just broadcasting great things about your product or service or your company all the time, that's not really a conversation. So one of the things that we try to do on social media is really use it to tell our customers' stories. Uh, our company is an identity technology product, but just the fact that we focus on identity gives us the ability to focus on the identities of some of our customers. So, that, for example, we ran a, a campaign, which we called Identities, 
which focused on the unique aspects of people in IT and their lives outside of work. So one example was a woman who was the only, four only person in the world to be a, a bodybuilding champion, a weightlifting champion, and the world's strongest woman winner. And she's also the head of security for one of our largest customers. So we didn't talk about what she does at work. We talked about her life outside of work. And we created this whole campaign around social media because we thought her story was really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that one was one of the ones that, um, from a social media standpoint, performed the best for us because we got a lot of conversation and interaction around it. So I think it has to be authentic, and you also have to make sure it's a conversation. And I'm going to give a little bit different perspective to that. So I look at social media. Yes, we do things for the brand, but the truth is I tell my team, like, we will not spend a dollar on social media if it doesn't make us the amount of money and the ROI that we expect out of it. For, you know, for every dollar that I spend, I have to bring in about 8 to $9 a pipeline. So I, I can't afford to do general brand awareness. And so we've been really super targeted. And if you... There are certain programs that all these companies, if you really get in there and find that there's inexpensive ways to get super, super targeted. LinkedIn is a great example. You can come in by company size, by industry, by title, by things in their profile and give them extremely targeted call to action ads. And at my prior company, um, in 2015, our, we were one of the top 10 most recognized brands on LinkedIn. And it was all companies you'd heard of and us. And I think that's because we just got so much high ROI from a pipe generation out of LinkedIn. And that's not normally how you think about social media. So, but you can. Do you think that that drives further innovation when, you know, you're so responsible and so accountable as a marketeer to, you know, deliver a return? Is that what's happening when you tell that story? It's like you're super creative around, you know, exhausting the channels available to you or thinking of new ones? I think so. Um, I, I always joke, I started out as a developer, and I don't think I would have been a marketer 20 years ago, mm -hmm. um, but now marketing is so data-driven and so analytical. Um, I really constantly think of new and creative ways that we can stretch the dollar. Um, but having said that, I always, usually my first hire is a super senior person that's really creative because that's not my skill set. Yes. So um, I think you do need a good balance, though. Perfect. And I would say on the yeah, social media, uh, we're, we're slightly different. I don't expect as much of a return on the social media channels, and I think they've changed over time. At DocuSign, Twitter was a great place to invest, and we saw people signing up, and now there's less of that for us. Even though we're on Twitter and we have good conversations, uh, more of it's been in Facebook. We're seeing much more return. We do a lot of retargeting off of Facebook, and people are signing up. Um, but in the last three and a half years, we've gone from 70,000 overall social followers to 575,000. And I was surprised how much, from the developer standpoint, how social they are. Mm -hmm. And they, they have opinions, and they're, they're fanatics, and they're haters <laughs> all in one, right? Like, there's a lot going on over social. And I feel like we've done a lot more around Instagram. Uh, people, I, I feel, are, are doing a lot more on Instagram than ever before. And we've worked with a lot of influencers that are on these channels to find more success than us just putting something out there, but trying to show our product to these influencers and have them talk about it. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really insightful. I want to just turn over to maybe one of the questions. And please keep voting the questions up on Slido, if you would. Um, the question I'm going to go to is the first one, because uh, top of the line, since marketing is developing so rapidly, how do you find specialists in new emerging areas or channels to the modern marketing teams? Anybody want to just offer a perspective on that? Sure. I mean, I tend to look at companies that 
whatever the function in marketing that I respect that they're doing. So if there's a company, whether it's a competitor or someone targeting developers that's not a competitor, I'll look, do I think they're doing a good job? And then I'll go on LinkedIn and try and find the team's that are involved and go have conversations, whether I poach that person or they introduce me to someone else in their network, but that's how I tend to okay, find the great. talent. Yeah, I, when, we, when we hire, we look for diversity in all, in all ways, but one of the things that I found to be hard to do, but especially effective, is hire people who have not worked in your industry or hire people who have not worked in that specific role before, but find people instead who have worked in multiple industries or multiple jobs in marketing, because what they have is not necessarily domain expertise, but they've, they've demonstrated the ability to learn something new. And as things move faster and change more quickly, I don't, want, I don't want to necessarily find somebody who is at a successful company doing one thing that was very successful over and over again, because they're more likely to just do the same thing they did before. Instead, I want somebody who's curious about a new and different way to do something, uh, who's more likely to seek out that new and different way as marketing changes. And what's so your top tip? I mean, I think we all are on, like, there's, we're on the path to talent all the time yeah. within all of our companies. So if you're going to say, okay, within that, it's a different profile from a different industry, like, what is the one thing that gets that person over the line for you? Like, what are you looking for? Skills, will? Curiosity and drive. And how does that, yeah, what does that look like? What's it it look like? I ask, every time I interview somebody, I ask them, the, 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 the entire interview is, tell me why you switched from one job to the next, how you made that decision. And if I'm looking for somebody who said, I, I wanted to do something different, I tried something new, I started a company that had failed, somebody who has the drive to try something that they didn't do before, I think is a key sign for that attribute we're looking for. Heather, are you any different? Do you, do you look for the, the same lear- thing? I totally agree. The learner mindset yeah. is huge. Beginner's mind. And I would say that uh, in addition to focus on recruiting, it's more important you focus on retention. How do you keep those people? How do you grow them? Because the leaky bucket is more expensive than recruiting. Than acquiring new talent. I think on the recruiting side, I try and ask, I start out by asking what they love about the job they're at or prior jobs. And then I always flip it to what they hate. And I try to uncover if they have a victim mindset Mm -hmm. or if they're going to solve problems. And if the, what they hate is, well, I couldn't do anything because I never got budget or so-and-so if it was, there's always someone else's fault. I know I don't want them on my team because they're going to be a victim. I want someone who's going to be on my team that's going to solve problems and not in my office saying why they couldn't get something done. So I try to uncover the victims very quickly. Okay. And is there a place for any victims on the team? Uh, I try to move them off my team very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Or they have to be micromanaged and yeah, you have to solve all their problems. It's not worth it. It's a different motion and engagement, yeah. uh, which is hard when you're in a fast-moving, high-growth company like all of yours. Yes. Um, let me turn to the second question with the most votes. For those interested in becoming a CMO, what skills are needed and required today? And what other advice do you have? Someone who, you got to be able to hire your weakness so a lot of times CMOs, you know, if they come up the comms branding route, they'll come up the product marketing route, or they'll come up demand gen. And whatever route they come up, they need to balance themselves. So I really came up more demand gen. I have to have a strong product marketer, and I want to have a strong comms brand. And if, or you need to have experience in those areas. So I think um, finding, know your weakness and hire people who are smarter than you in the other areas. Uh, and then also just being able to hire, right? Building the team with the skill set Excellent. you need. Good. I think the three things I would say, and this is specifically for B2B, um, is number one, data-driven. Marketing is all about analytics and number savvy and being super data-driven. 
Number two, we've hit on this already, but a really strong tech mindset because technology is how you're going to solve 90% of your challenges. And then the third thing is sales. So whether or not, you could be the best marketer in the whole world as a B2B marketer, and if you don't hit sales numbers and your sales team doesn't believe that you're feeding them what they need, you're failing. So a really strong partnership with sales and a sales mindset. And I think those are the three most important things if you can gain experience uh, will help you on the path to CMO. Ryan, anything you'd add? Unfortunately, both, they both stole my answers. I did this gold standard CMO project a couple years ago. I ran out and interviewed as many CMOs as I could to create like a superhero composite picture of what a CMO should be. And Megan is exactly right. It's three different things. You either came up through product marketing, you came up through corporate, PR, brand, you know, telling a big story, or your demand gen. And then Heather's exactly right. Uh, the found, co-founder of ServiceNow said that any CMO worth her salt needs to have the company's pipeline number tattooed on her forehead. You need to be focused on sales and driving pipeline. Um, I think Heather said it earlier, every dollar that she spends needs to return eight to nine. I have a much higher ratio on my head. We have to talk about that after. <laughs> um, but it, it, is, it does come down to driving pipeline for companies that are at growth stages like all of our companies are. Yeah, I think that's really insightful and I agree. The only thing I would ask is, and maybe this is a Salesforce mindset, is to be customer obsessed, which the customer is at the center of everything that we do. And obviously speaking the language of the customer is the fundamental for kind of anybody who's working in marketing in our organization. Um, I know we crowdsourced some great questions, but I think I'm going to go back to Slido if that's okay, because there's some good ones that are coming through here. How do you structure your marketing teams at different stages of a company lifestyle cycle? Now, I think all of you have worked in different companies, different sizes. Heather, I know you came from a very big company. Maybe I'll take your perspective first because you've been through small, medium, and large. This is a hard one. So my last company, I came in when we were zero in ARR, and we grew it to 100 million billing. So I was at all of those stages. And... I think you have to organize your team for the demands of the business. So number one, in the, all of these stages, one to five million, five to 15, 15 plus, back to what Ryan just said, if the most important thing you can do is to help deliver revenue. So demand gen and building pipeline is foremost. Now, how you do that is, is, is up to your company story and up to your specific talents. Do you need a, a stronger creative team? Do you need a really strong digital team? Do you have the majority of your sales team is out in regions and you're going to predominantly build pipe through field marketing? So I think really thinking about how you're going to build that pipe number and the talent you need is really the most important thing um, at these early stages. I would, yeah, I would add to that. Um, I think it, it comes down to a decision, which is not easy to make, but is easy to describe, where where do you switch from generalist to specialist? Early on, you need a product marketing person who can get out there and, and get on a stage, who can also help you craft the email for an automated uh, email campaign, who can also give great demos. Later on, you need somebody in product marketing who focuses specifically on pricing, for example. So when you make the choice to switch from generalist to specialist, I think is the key part of that. And that probably depends on the specific people you have in your organization more than the structure of it, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, When I work with startups, a lot of times early stage, you need a product market. You're you're trying to do product market fit, so you really have to understand the messaging and nail that and understand the customer and the persona you're going after. And if your founder is not someone who can write and do that part of it, they need to bring in a product marketer. If your founder is there writing and you have biz dev talent, then I would bring in someone who's doing more of the demand that's trying to get programs out, whether it's webinars or email 
you know, email marketing or tactics to just get the few targeted accounts mm-hmm. in uh, and through it. But you're right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of someone who could do all sorts of skill sets that's working all hours in the beginning. That's a, a really good point. All successful marketing, you have to first nail your messaging and your personas. And I think at startups in these early stages, the first question you have to ask yourself is no matter who you hire, is that going to be your founder? Because even if you think you have the best product marketer in the world and your founder um, has this vision of how he wants to communicate in the market, trust me, that's what you're going to end up doing. You might as well just accept it early on. (laughs) Yeah, I think they're all super relevant. And when we think about it as well, we think about like, what are the type of people and profiles you need to get to 50 million to 100 million? And then it shifts gear to 500 million to a billion. There's different motions. So I think you have to just be super tailored. I know we don't have that much time left, but I do want to get to this question, Heather, particularly to you, because we're seeing this margins of marketeers also wanting revenue numbers. For me, who's grown up a lot of my career owning big sales numbers, I'm super interested in, in this question, which is, you know, how do you drive revenue streams and be accountable for revenue streams in the context of obviously being a CMO? And what are you seeing in the marketplace in your own organization or further around that? Yeah, so after 20 years of really just B2B uh, marketing or working in B2B teams, at Pluralsight, about 25% of our revenue comes from individuals. Um, technically B2C, but B2D, B2Developer. And it's been interesting because I've owned a revenue number for the first time. So we're a publicly traded company and um, it's a little bit more stressful at earnings calls when I know that I own a quarter of that revenue number. Uh, luckily, knock on wood, so, so, so far so good. But I think there's, um, uh, what's exciting for me with this opportunity is this motion of B to C to B. You look at Dropbox, you look at Slack, you know, I, you probably come up with 20 other really great examples of companies who are either doing a free product and moving it to an individual that paid and then moving it into B2B and really getting that successful, it's the most lucrative lead gen programs you can do because then you have an advocate. It's like a Trojan horse. You have an advocate inside the company that is already using your product and wants to push it out. So I think it's it's referral selling, which we all know is some of the most successful selling in B2B at its best. Do you think this is a great time for marketeers? I do. I love being a marketer right now. Excellent. Me too. <laughs> I think I have one time for one more question, Catherine. I know you're giving me the nod. I want to go to this one on the top of Slido is um, how do you adopt marketing strategy for specific new regions like ASEAN? Um, I don't know from your experience, have you worked in the Asian markets? Is there something that you would offer here as guidance? I mean, certainly as I've seen companies enter, often you go through a partner first that understands the market, the local market. And as you have leads coming in already to your site, you're handing the leads over and they're educating you. As you get a little bit further along, you get one sales rep in the region and you tend to map them with one marketing rep or someone who covers the region to start localizing the content. Uh, Maybe you're sponsoring shows that are in that region, but not running your own show. And then you're starting to do some dinners there as you're kind of building momentum in that region. Yeah, I totally agree. I would just add to that. When you go in with a partner, you typically will understand the region and the specifics of that region from that partner, but you still need to put somebody there who knows your story. It doesn't take many people, but I think putting one person there earlier than you otherwise think would help make sure that your story is told and matches with the region-specific story you're getting from the partner. Anything to add, Heather? 
Well, I think, I think this is Benioff who said this, so I love that I'm quoting your, your, your boss. But um, I think he said, you know, if you're going to go into a region, don't go unless you can go big. And I think the number was like around 50 sales reps, which is crazy because a lot of us probably only have 50 sales reps total in the company. But I think there is something to that. Unless you're willing to make the commitment that it really takes to enter a region, you're going to limp along and not do that well. Yeah, and for me, I've just spent the last two years in Asia Pacific around this, and a lot of companies have approached me saying, how did Salesforce stand up here in Asia or in India or in Australia, New Zealand? And to your point, Mark is very honest, and he said, you know, look at your TAM, look at your opportunity, rank that against other markets, and you might be ranking Southeast Asia against Texas. But like be very clear and explicit on the maturity of cloud in that marketplace and then where you can go. And if you're going to be a small company, maybe you need to be a follower of somebody big that's gone before you. So um, we're really clear on that as a strategy. Catherine, am I good? Have one more? <laughs> one more question? Okay, where do you see the future? I'm going to go really quickly. I'll start with you, Megan, Ryan, Heather. Uh, so quickly, I would think in the last five years, we've shifted everything to digital. It's been digital because it's easy to measure. I feel like we're shifting back to being in the field, to being relationship building. And maybe this is the stage I'm in having gone public this year. It's a lot more relationship events and, and, mm-hmm. and that. Uh, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and blockchain. I'm just kidding. I think what <laughs> Megan said is really good. We use technologies, but you can't veer too far to that. You still need to balance that with the things that work in person. The number one driver of ROI of events, of all the money that we spend in marketing, uh, of pipeline, is events, uh, sponsoring events like SaaS stock. Excellent. Thank you. I think it's technology around the customer. So very targeted account-based marketing. It could be digital. It could be events. But really leveraging target, really leveraging technology to hit your customers. With that, I want to thank Megan, Ryan, Heather. Thank you for being with us today. And thank you for uh, sharing the panel with us. And thank you to everybody who showed up and shared this moment with us. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and you've picked up some valuable lessons from the four CMOs. Alex will be back next week with the next episode of our new series, The Struggle. I was in the struggle for 10 years. I I was in that phase of, I I just need to find something that works. I I don't care how, I don't care. I don't have any plan. I don't know how it's going to work, but we've been stagnating at 120, 140,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And it's been three years and four years. And I'm I'm not even, I don't even know if I was paying myself yet because I think I paid myself minimum wage and I stopped paying myself for a year or two. Then I paid myself minimum wage again. It was, it was that kind of struggle. I I told Ben, I said, okay, Ben, we're going to start this Agora Pulse thing. Um, We're, we're going to aim for 49 a month average, you know, our pew, average revenue per user in a year. We need to have 1,000 users paying us 49 bucks on average, i.e. 49,000 a month. That we, If we cannot get to that in one year, I'm done. I'm fed up. And I, I've been exhausting myself, kidding myself, divorcing the whole nine yards for the last 12 years, 10 years. Um, I, I, I'm done. We, we ever make something that works because we've tried too many times. I just can't take any more of it. Make sure you tune in for that. Thanks for listening and see you next time.